to the Gentleman Ultras podcast. I am your host, Richard Hall, and I am joined by Emmett Gates this week. How are you, sir? Doing fine, Richard. Doing fine. Glad to be back. We haven't done a pod in a while, so looking forward to speaking about Abadio, as always. <laughs> yeah, we'll come to that in a minute. We're also joined by a new member of the team, and I'm really excited to introduce David Farini to the Gentleman Ultras podcast, Syria commentator. So we are expecting that this man's going to have a lot of knowledge. How are you, David? You okay? Hi, Rich. Hi, Emma. Delighted to be here with you two legends of uh, Serie A and just football in general. So excited. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> that's good a, man, good man. <laughs> we'll just stop the podcast. Okay? That's it. We're finished. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. It's done. It's done. I'm buttering you up nice and early. So. <laughs> so David, just before we start, just tell uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, and you know it's really interesting the fact that you do the City Act commentary. So you know from just you know tons of few games you've got coming up, and just uh, a bit about how you got into it, because I think the listeners would be interested. I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, my history is not that great, but uh, yeah, City Act fan from from being a kid. Uh, not a massive fan of the of the big big clubs. Uh, I love watching and commentating some of the smaller clubs. And uh, I've got, uh, for example, Sampdoria Bologna coming up this Sunday. Uh, I'm not sure how sensitive uh, time-wise this pod will be. But uh, yeah, if, if uh, anyone's watching Serie A this Sunday, three o'clock kickoff, we'll be doing Sant Bologna, doing Serie B as well. So I'm one of the couple of commentators that flick between both Serie A and Serie B is being broadcast worldwide this season, 20. 21 22 so yeah it's great uh, and occasionally do a, a pod here and there <laughs> good stuff that's nice to hear and i'll be listening for that one on, on sunday and just before we kick off emma you're you're also having a bit of a trip over to uh to italia this weekend yeah going to the derby della madanina um first time going to italy in about 27 months, August 2019 was the last time I was um, in Italy. So yeah, looking forward to getting back and it'll be my first Derby della Madanina. So looking forward to taking that off the list. And yeah, once I get through all this COVID red tape stuff, should be good to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm sure it's going to be a cracking game as well, that one. So we're talking today though about, um, you mentioned Baggio. And it's not about Eddie, as you may be thinking. It's also not about Roberto, but it's what we've labelled the forgotten Baggio, and it's Dino Baggio. And I just want to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, David, if that's okay. Dino Baggio, um, what's your earliest memories of him? Uh, you know, whether it's or even the most spectacular memory you can think of of him. How does he resonate with you? The earliest is definitely 1994 World Cup. Uh, that was like the prime age for me as a as a teen to watch Dino in all his glory. And back then, uh, he was the main midfielder. Uh, to be fair, especially in in the middle of the centrocampo, uh, he smashed home a brilliant goal. I think it was against Spain. He also headed one in against Norway. He was the budger that saved Italy after the other one was sacrificed in the same game. Absolutely, you certainly was. Sacrifice is a good, a good way to put that. To be fair, I mean Emmett, same question. Earliest memories of this man? Um, 
I want to say it was post USN eighty four, um, probably with Parma. There is is years with Parma because I only really got into football at USN eighty four, um, but I only kind of got into the game from like the quarterfinal onwards. I kind of missed Dino basically saving Italy in the group stage. Um, so my first experience of them obviously would have been Football Italia on Channel 4 at some point. And obviously, sharing that surname at that time, you know, obviously he always stood out in my head because he shared the surname. Um, but I never remember seeing too much of him early on. It was only really when you got to maybe the mid to late 90s that I kind of appreciated him for how good of a, a midfielder he really was. Yeah, oh, completely. It's, it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm showing my age here, but for myself, I don't remember him um, at, at Torino. Uh, and you think, again, with the name, you probably would do. But it's also the fact that he spent a season on loan at Inter. Um, and he's not. I mean, obviously, it's his proudest moment of his career. But, um, but other than that, I don't, I don't particularly probably the, remember. Probably the darkest, darkest time of his career. Yeah, well, he, he went from Serie B to uh, on loan to Inter. So that... That describes uh, the you know the the way that he went down the ladder. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to admit, even though he, you know he's twenty seven appearances and he grabs a goal there, but it's not. Um, I, I knew he'd been there, but you do when you you read up about him again and you do think, wow, okay, yeah. And then it, then it was on to Juventus, but I mean, I've got a question for for David here. I mean, we talked about just then that he's the namesake of obviously. Roberto Baggio, who's probably one of the greatest players to to grace City, if not world football. Um, do you think that Dino is a bit underrated because obviously he has his the surname, uh, so people are always going to refer back and think, you know, you always get that question. You type in Dino Baggio on Google, and what comes up is Dino Baggio, Roberto Baggio's brother, which, which he isn't, by the way. Yeah, no relation. Um, so do you? <laughs> no relation. We'll clear that up from the start. We can't go through the brother, brother later on, but definitely Dino's not. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, do you think that he's underrated because of that? Because he's not seen for his own ability. And also, you know, whilst we're touching base on it, we will do it a bit more later, but he really did have some ability, didn't he? He was phenomenal in that midfield, especially with Palmer, as you mentioned before. He was amazing at Lazio. The way he came through as a young player, he really didn't have, he did have Robbie Baggio in, you know, was under that umbrella, under the shadow, but at the same time, because he was a midfielder, he definitely made his own name. And the way he did it quite emphatically, especially with Parma and with the Italian national team, he carried Italy through that 94 uh, group stage and also the first part of that uh, knockout against Spain, even though Robbie Baggio got Italy through against Nigeria, Spain was up next and uh, Dino struck gold for, for one nil. He still made his own name and his own path, I believe. And it was a reflection in his club career from the mid to late nineties with Palmer winning three UEFA cups. So definitely was stuck under that, you know, with the namesake issue, definitely, but still made his own path, his own journey. Yeah, I mean, as well, I mean, we, we've talked about this briefly off air, but I mean, 
he didn't also mind being referred to as the second Baggio, it seemed. It seemed it's something he was close, wasn't he, Emmett, with Roberto. Um, that relationship sort of stayed out throughout his career. Yeah, and he, he's spoken in the past, you know, about he had no problem, you know, basically his peak coinciding with Roberto's peak and them two kind of always being associated. I mean, if it, if it had been Dino Baggio and Eddie Baggio around at the same time, maybe he might have had a problem with it. Um, but then it's, as is Roberto and Robbie was a genius, um, I'm sure Dino had real no qualms about it. And he, and he said as much, you know, that they remained in close contact over the years, even though as both of them kind of have shied away from the current game, you know, Obviously, Baggio does his own thing and is around his um, his farm um, in Caldonio um, near Vicenza. And obviously, Dino, whatever he's doing at the moment, he's not really involved in football. Um, so, but they've always kept in close contact. Um, so, yeah, he really had no problem, you know, being maybe the lesser Baggio, if you could say that, which is probably not even fair on Dino. But when you're always associated with Roberto, you're always going to be the lesser Baggio no matter how good you are. And also, I'll just cut in here. Dino has stated in a couple of interviews that the best player he's ever played beside is Roberto Baggio. So there's that link once again. He's not afraid to, to, to be se- play second fiddle. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, and... it is, it is, it is a, not ironic, but it is coincidental that they're not related. Usually, you see in football families, maybe brothers like say Pippo and Simone and Zaghi they were around at the same time or there's maybe two or three years difference in what you know in the ages sure but these two players who share the same surname hit their peak at the same time but they're not related like what are the chances that is very very slim and for them not to be related not to be brothers or cousins or there is no relation so it is very <laughs> odd should we say and it's never really been it's- repeated since you have the, the Filipini brothers, the Inzaghi brothers. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's probably others that I, I can't think of. They're around at the same time, but they were family. But these two weren't. <laughs> the Vieri no, brothers. Oh. <laughs> what did you call Christian's younger brother? His name is Massimiliano. Max. That's right. Max. <laughs> Aussie striker. Played for Australia. Max. And uh, thank- thankfully, Christian played for Italy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, got it could, the, could have been so different. <laughs> well, I mean, he actually played with Robbie Budger in that 98 World Cup. So there you go again. It's just that constant Robbie Budger link. But let's get back to Dino. <laughs> I think it's worthwhile because we keep talking about the fact of, you know, that he, he was at his peak at the same time. We've talked about the clubs he's played for and the competitions he's won. But I mean, David, for, for yourself, I mean, what made him such a good player? You know, what? what were his abilities that stood out for you? Because, you know, for, for me, it's when you look back, especially when you do research something like this, I think you forget just how good he was. Well, he was a, a midfielder. It was quite a tall midfielder. I think he was coming in around that one metre 90 mark. And I might just add, he played with Robbie Baggio at Juventus for a couple of seasons. And that was just before the 94 World Cup. So he is a player that can get in the box. Uh, he is commonly known as, uh, was known as a defensive midfielder, box to box in the end, 
could smack one from long range, could finish well, uh, and we'll probably get to that bicycle kick that he scores uh, for <laughs> for Palmer against Milan later on. But and phenomenal with a head, as you can see against. Uh, I think it was Norway in the 94 World Cup, that uh, brilliant ball mm. in from Signori. So he can score every which way. Uh, not prolific, but he was a central midfielder in an age where you fed the ball to the feet of the likes of Zola, Crespo, uh, and so on. So, yeah, that's what he was for me. No, absolutely. I think the, I, I, Sorry. Absolutely. You go for it, Emma. I was going to refer that question to you anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the thing about, obviously, looking back in retrospect at Dino Baggio, I think the thing that stands out for me is that he was so, especially in terms of Italian midfielders of the 90s, he was almost unparalleled in a way because you had the likes of Dimitri Albertini, who was a, a regista, not really physical, not quick but obviously had a great brain then you had the likes of Luigi Di Biagio who was kind of an all-rounder but maybe didn't score as many goals say as Dino Baggio but Dino Baggio could almost do everything his game encompassed all facets of what being a central midfielder was and player Italian players like him were very rare in the 90s you know Richard me and you've talked about Mm. this before about how in the 90s Italy had an abundance of world-class goalkeepers, world-class defenders, world-class number 10s, world-class strikers. But midfield is kind of the weak area for me of Italy throughout the 90s. But Dino Baggio was one of the very few that could... He's, if I could sum him up for a younger viewer or a younger listener, he's almost like an Italian Patrick Vieira. Kind of can do it all, box-to-box, marauding, dynamic, quick, strong, powerful, good in the air. Maybe that's not you know, Patrick Vieira's, you know, maybe our generation. So it's not maybe for younger, younger <laughs> listeners, but that's the that's the comparison that comes to my mind. You know, and he was Dino was very unique in that sense because Italy didn't have a lot of players at the time with his skill set. That's true. I'll just jump in here. He played in that ninety four World Cup where he he was by far Italy's best midfielder and he had Nicola Berti, no offense, Rich, but uh Berti <laughs> You know, he ended up in the in the in the National Soccer League of Australia, playing for Northern Spirit at one stage, and it wasn't that long after the '94 World Cup. Uh, and you know, then there was Antonio Conte, who was in Dino Baggio's shadow at that World Cup, and that is the caliber of player that Dino was, because players like Conte were coming off the bench to to sort of give him a rest for 15 minutes here and there. But Arrigo Sacchi needed him in that starting 11, no matter what. And that's one of the common denominators of that 94 World Cup team is Dino from start to finish. Would you also say that then in that case, and I think some of the evidence probably speaks for itself, but that World Cup uh, showed maybe the start or maybe it was just earlier, actually, that he proved himself to be uh, a big game player because as he goes through his career, uh, there are many times, aren't there, where he stands up when when others don't. And I mean, guys, I, I know you pretty much already know this, but do you want to tell our listeners what his 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 record is? I mean, David, I think you you can certainly let us know on this one um, because it's quite spectacular. As in his 
club record winning titles, that kind of thing? Yeah, when I saw a big game player, because he got a few goals in finals, didn't he? Yeah, he's got the record for most goals in what we now know as Europa League finals. He's got five. And, you know, he scored some, some decent goals for Italy as well. But in the UEFA League, in, in the UEFA Cup, as it was known back in the 90s, smashed a few goals in in the finals and won three of them. So I think he won one with uh, Juventus and a couple with Parma. But never a Serie A, uh, unfortunately, mm. because Parma probably deserved one in 1996. But uh, phenomenal uh, to win those kind of tournaments, especially with Parma, who was second division until around 1990. And to be part of that side that was uh, put together, I think it was Nevio Scala back then, and he got the likes of Dino Baggio to join Gianfranco Zola and Massimo Cripa. Uh, there was a bit of an exodus from Napoli to uh, Parma with Fabio Cannavaro as well. And they gelled and he was able to once again be one of the uh, protagonists, as the Italians say, uh, to lead that club, se- club side forward and, and dominate in Europe. Uh, they won 1994, 95, 1998, 99. So a few years apart there. And they also beat Milan in a Super Cup final. They won an Italian Cup, which I guess back in the 90s was probably not as revered as what it is now. Winning an Italian Cup is, is a big thing, especially when Juventus are winning nine on the trot uh, with the Serie A. But yeah, he's, 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 he's won a fair bit of uh, silverware, especially as a young player in 1992. They won the under-21 UEFA Championship as well and a mm-hmm. silver medal at the FIFA World Cup 94. So there you go. Well, I think too, David, hasn't he, didn't he score like, was it four or five times in UEFA Cup Finals? Yeah, five. In like 93 and 95? Five, and it will be a record that shouldn't ever be broken only because, uh, you know, a caveat here is back in the 90s, uh, for some years there were uh, two legs in those finals. So he was able to play an extra couple of games and score. However, in this day and age, I, I can't see it happening unless someone smacks home three and then, you know, another three in a couple of years uh, consecutive. Do you think that's also yeah, think, because um... of the, the... Sorry, I'm just saying, do you think that's probably because uh, players, you know, if they were to score two or three in a final, uh, you know, with someone like Sevilla, they'd probably be quickly uh, snapped up by a bigger club? Exactly. Or, as well, do you think that it's... It may not be broken because of the link between the Champions League now and the the Europa League. It could go the other way, where the third team out of the Champions League groups goes down, and you know, uh, you know, a club like Milan, for example, they could finish third and a couple of years in a row. They might have someone like a Giroud in there uh, in a couple of finals if they ever make the final. That is, I, I doubt it. But uh, you know, Victor Osimhen, for example, this year with Napoli, if if they happen to make a final, he's the kind of striker that could easily score three or four in a game. And uh, someone like him possibly could break Dean or Budger's record. But, you know, you go back to 1992-93, in that competition, as a central midfielder behind names like uh, Georges Weyer, who was with PSG at the time, Robbie Budger scored six with Juventus in that UEFA Cup, 
So George Weah scored seven. There was uh, Daniel Fonseca with Napoli that scored six. Dilo Baggio scored five. So <laughs> with Viali. So you've got Dino Baggio in that elite category of being the number six goal scorer in the UEFA Cup competition. That's how good he was. It's, cra- it's crazy. Even, even outscoring Gianluca Viali. <laughs> I think they finished level, but still, they were in the same, the same side. They were both playing with Juventus. And, How did Vialli get five? Uh, Vialli got five, but, but Dino Baggio, r- remember, was playing in a central midfield position and scoring five in that uh, tournament. You know, we're talking about group stage all the way through to the final, but unbelievable. Well, I think you have to remember too um, about Vialli is that his first two seasons at Juventus where he was very poor, it was only really when Marcello Lippi arrived in the summer of 1984, that Viali kind of found his groove again. You know, his, he found his Sampdoria form. But in those two, those first two years at Juve, um, when Trapattoni was manager, if you look up his stats, like he was very, he wasn't close to the player that he was had been at Samp. I think one so of the issues really there. Doesn't... Sorry, go on, Emmett. I'll I'll get to my point in a second. I know it just it doesn't surprise me that Dino Baggio either outscored him or was you know his, his tally was equal, um, because Viali really really struggled in those two first two seasons. Yeah, well, I think Viali may have struggled in Serie A a little bit more, and back then with a you know Juventus was a super club, and I guess it still is, but uh, there wouldn't have been uh, too much of a discrepancy with someone like Viali, who still had players like Robbie Budge at the club, he may have been preferred in the UEFA Cup and other strikers, uh, you know, your Ravinelli's or whoever were out at the time would have been preferred in, in Serie A because, you know, midweek games compared to the weekend as usual. But I was going to say, Viali may have not been on his steady diet of two packs of cigarettes at the time, like his Chelsea <laughs> days. So could have held him back. <laughs> just, just a little bit. I mean... <laughs> Moving forward then, so, I mean, he next features, doesn't he, in, um, well, he loses a final, of course, um, in 94-95, if I'm not mistaken. And again, though, even though he he does that, he still has another blistering campaign. Well, 94-95 was kind of Dino Baggio's peak in terms of his goal output. I mean, I think he scores 12 in all competitions and he scores... Five or six, I think, in the in the UEFA Cup run. You know, it's what's um, funny about that season is that Juventus and Parma are basically challenging for all the titles. They're basically contesting Serie A. They meet in the two-legged final of the Coppa Italia, and then they meet in the two-legged final of the UEFA Cup in 84-85. And there's a period from mid-May 1985 until early June where they face each other five times, once in the <laughs> league, twice in the Coppa Italia final and twice in the UEFA Cup final. Um, and basically, yeah, that whole season was Dino Baggio against Roberto Baggio because obviously Roberto Baggio was in his last season at Juve. And Dino Baggio actually scores in both legs of the UEFA Cup final. Um, and one of them turns out to be the winner um, because Juve, I think Parma won the first leg 1-0 and then Viali scores the game isn't that the Delhi Albi? It's at San Siro. 
and Viali scores a wonderful volley into the top corner, and then I think Dino Baggio yeah. scores the equaliser, and I think Parma win two one in aggregate. Um, yeah. And he also scored Juve and Parma actually met at the Tardini in January '95, and Dino Baggio scored in that as well against his old club. So that was kind of Dino Baggio's peak, I think, in terms of definitely in terms of his goal output for Parma that season. Then I've got a question for you. Then then this is going to be to, to both of you. Do you think he was wrong then to move? Because, you know, after the 94 World Cup, obviously Palmer are coming in for him. Um, but you just said there, he's almost at his peak. Um, do you think that he could have carried on and got even better if he would have stayed at Juventus? Well, the story the, that, the story around that is legendary. Um, Parma wanted Del Piero and Juve accepted and then Del Piero was ready to go, and then Juve changed their minds and kept Del Piero. And so then Parma asked for Dino Baggio, and Juventus said yes. So if the Del Piero deal had went through, Dino Baggio would have stayed. Like that is a major sliding doors moment in the summer of 94. <laughs> Wolf, what would have happened with that? Can you imagine Del Piero and that Parma team and Dino Baggio staying there when he was at his peak? And then, and then Roberto Baggio stays. Because Del Piero isn't there to take over, and you know the course of Juve's history and Parma's history is completely different. That's that's crazy. What do you think, David? Do you think that the do you think that the right move uh, for Juventus to keep Del Piero, or do you think that if they'd have kept Baggio and Baggio, Baggio boys would have uh, done the job for them? Look, just going back to Dino Baggio's move. I think in that ninety three ninety four season, just before the World Cup, he may have been injured for a little bit as well. He actually didn't score in Serie A that season and he got nine goals in 92-93. So Juventus may have been a bit happier to to offload him uh, considering they could hang on to Del Piero. And uh, personality-wise, I don't think the, uh, either of the Bajos were, were, were right for Juventus only because, I mean, you look at the those... I mean, obviously, they're both good enough to play for one of the, the big three clubs. And I think Robbie Budgel played for all of them. But Dino, you know, you go to his personality. He, he's a vegan. Robbie Budgel's a Buddhist. It's not all about playing for the top three clubs. And I think as we go on with Dino's life, we'll find that he kind of had an issue with the big clubs later on and with some of the officiating that happened and probably, I don't want to say the word robbed, but uh, there's a couple of unlucky calls that that uh, ensured that Palmer didn't win a Serie A title. So I think in Dino's case, definitely moving on to Palmer wasn't a bad thing for him. And he was also part of this, uh, you know, revolution in Emilio Romagna there with the likes of Zola and Cannavaro and Robbie Baggio, you know, he went from Juventus. Uh, he was a Ballon d'Or winner in the, in the early nineties and he was always going to leave for a big, big club. And at that time, the Maldinis, Baresis and, and so on at, at Milan, he went there and played, I think with George Weir in 95, 96 before moving on. So, even Roberto Baggio moving on to a, a smaller clubs as anyone that knows his history, he ends up at Bologna and Brescia. Mm. You know, those kinds of players, I think, that mentally 
stable that they can play for smaller clubs and not have to play for these big clubs like Juventus. You think that really think- is a sort of personality thing then? It's, it's something like you're saying, it's that idea that football isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, exactly. It, it, or, yeah. And they can contribute to, to any lineup, as you saw with Robbie Budge at Brescia and with Dino moving to Parma and then to Lazio. I think it maybe worked out for the best because in the summer of 94, Juve sell Dino Baggio and they bring in Didier Deschamps and Paolo Sousa. And they, them two formed the bedrock of that three-man midfield with Antonio Conte um, in the 94-95 season. So maybe in a way it all worked out for the best. Yeah. So, so when you look back over that Palmer career as well, I mean... It really, I know you're saying that he sort of peaked at Juventus, but would you say that this is the part of his career now where he just goes through an element of consistency? Because, as you say, to be able to play that much for uh, Palmer in that decade of 94-2000, it's some achievement, isn't it, David? I mean, the, the players that Palmer had at that time, it was like different, different level. Um, uh, it, he comes in just off the back of them losing the Cup Winners' Cup to Arsenal, I think, it doesn't he, in 94 was that 93, 94? I think it was. Um, yeah, the but, uh, Cup Winners' Cup final Alan was in Smith 94. Got. Yeah, 94. Palmer yeah. with the holders. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you saw Dino Baggio in that Palmer side with the likes of uh, Lorenzo Minotti, Ben Arrivo, uh, Luca Bucci, uh, you've got Sensini in there, Zola, Sprilla, Fernando Couto. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a, a poor side at all. Uh, you know, Roberto Musi was uh, a World Cup player in 94. He was in that side. And, you know, they'd played together earlier in, in Dino Baggio's early career with Torino. Uh, so there's a few players that sort of came along together. But by far, Dino was the standout player of that sort of 1989, 90, era of young Italian players coming through. By then... Robbie Budger was already established. Obviously, he played the 1990 World Cup. Dino was coming through. He had that uh, brilliant tournament with the Azzurini in the under-21 championships in 1992. Scored a screamer from way out. He got Italy to the World Cup again in 1994 in the qualifiers with another long-range bomb. And with Palmer, you can just see, you know, he he slotted in to to a side with uh, Minotti, Sensini in that midfield as well, and uh, Asprilla Zola up front. Well, here's I give you another sliding doors moment. Um, (laughs) In the summer of 1987, the Baggio boys could have been reunited at Parma because Roberto had agreed a deal. He obviously was on the outs at Milan. Fabio Capello had told him that basically there was no room for him in for the 97-98 season and told him to find a new club. And basically, a deal had been agreed between Baggio and Carlisto Tanzi, Parma's president. But Carlo Ancelotti put the brakes on the deal, saying he didn't want Baggio. He played a 4-4-2. He had Hernan Crespo and Enrico Chiesa. And basically, he, he wasn't going to play Baggio in his preferred position. So actually, you could have had Roberto and Dino back together for Parma, but the deal didn't happen. <laughs> that would have been quite something, but you, yeah. like you say, you can't see him in an Ancelotti side. Really can't. It's like it would have been difficult to. Oh, I don't well, know. Maybe. Well, well, it is. It's definitely at that time because Ancelotti was a 
a disciple of Arrigo Saki yeah. and all he played was 4-4-2 and Ancelotti has said himself in the years since that he regrets not taking Baggio because he went to Bologna and scored 22 goals you know that season, the following season and obviously by the time Ancelotti gets to the Milan he's playing like Rui Costa Kaka and Pirlo in the same side you know he, he learned <laughs> to adapt but at that point in his life in his coaching career he was a strict 4-4-2 man yeah, well, Arrigo Saki was actually uh, the coach that Dino Baggio claims that he learned the most from. And I guess that comes because he played under him at the 94 World Cup uh, and he was just such a big part of his life. He, you know, he, best player was Robbie Baggio, best coach for him was Arrigo Saki. And it was just, those are the names of that era. And as you said, Ancelotti learning from Saki. I don't know, all, all these kind of names just sort of are entwined for Dino Baggio. <laughs> Roberto, Roberto Baggio wouldn't be saying that about Arrigo Saki, I'll tell you. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so, so Dino Baggio at Parma, um, he wins the UEFA Cup in 1994-95, 1998 to 1999, the Super Coppa Italiana in 1999, as well as the Coppa Italia in 1998-99. To both of you, really, but I'll start with David. What do you think was his crowning moment at, at Parma and the, the area of his time, of, well, the time of his career where he really thought he's probably sparkled the most? Um, does he have a late resurgence in 98-89? Uh, Sorry, 99. Well, with, with Parma, he was fairly consistent. His first season, he put away 12 goals across uh, all the competitions. And then he was fairly steady, you know, contributing a few goals per season. He left there with, I think, nearly uh, 30 goals. So he was steady. It wasn't until, I mean, I think he left in 2000 and went to Rome to play with Lazio. But at Parma, I mean, most Parma supporters, m most guys I know that, that are Parma supporters today are because of the Dino Baggio era of the mid to late 90s. So, you know, they love the Ducali specifically mm. for Dino Baggio, and Faustino Asprilla. Those are the two names that come to mind. Maybe Hernan Crespo as well. So Dino Baggio was Parma, in essence, you know. Um, I'm sorry, did I answer the question or did I totally go on off on another tangent? <laughs> no, completely. It's just when you start talking about that Parma team from that, that era, it really is something that's just so special because the names, when you start to, to rattle them off, and even... If you go back to, to the early 90s, you know, from 1993 onwards, when you start from players like Thomas Berlin, uh, you know, Taffarel, and then move it all the way forward, it just seems to be this complete revolving doors of spectacular players. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, even when you see that the fact that they didn't particularly, well, they didn't win Serie A, um, it, it seems such a shame now because they are as iconic as probably any team of that era. Um, I mean... I mean, for you, have you got any abiding moments of the, his time at Parma that, or is it, like David says, do you just think it's a consistency that's there that was probably needed in that team? That sort of, it would be a disservice to say workmanlike, but did that team need him and players like him to gel all those superstars that came around uh, at that time together? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you said, he was always there, that the constant. Um, just in midfield. There was no... I can't really pick out one standout moment from his Parma, time at Parma. 
you know, at the time, obviously looking back in retrospect, you think, all oh, right, he was great in this season or that season. But it was always just when Parma were on Channel 4, it was always, Dino Baggio was always in the centre of midfield. Always, you know, obviously you had Zola, Brolin, Aspria, they all left. And then you had Hernan Crespo, Enrico Chiesa come in and Dino Baggio was still there. And then when Chiesa left and then Crespo left, Baggio was still there only for maybe a brief period. He was he was just always the constant. And the team always changed around him. You know, Seba Veron was there mm-hmm. and left. Yeah. But Dino Baggio was just still there. He was just always the constant. You had Oil Ortega come in for a while. But Dino Baggio was always still there. Just always a constant presence in that side in midfield. It could have been so different as well at one point, though, couldn't it? Because the 98-99 UEFA Cup, I'll let you guys discuss this one. I mean, David, they're playing against uh, Wisla Krakow. And uh, what happens? It's uh, a bit of a very, very lucky incident for him. Well, unlucky, but also lucky. Yeah, uh, Dino Baggio standing on the field and, and all of a sudden a knife comes out of nowhere and hits him. It's been hurled down from the stands and hits him in the side of the head, uh, the back of the head, side of the head. And like the absolute pillar of strength that he is, he doesn't go down clutching his face like uh, he's just been slapped uh, Thierry Henry style. Uh, he, he actually stands there, withstands the pain, tries to figure out what's going on. Um, and yeah, taking a knife to the face in a European match. Not the nicest it's thing. Cra- crazy to watch. It I is. Mean, that, I mean, I know he says that it could have got him in the eye if it had turned. He really could. Um, I mean, watching back some of those moments, uh, especially in the mid-90s, some of the stuff that was thrown from the stands <laughs> and the way that players had to put up with it, and I'm sure it goes worse and worse to feel the back we go into the 80s, but it was a, it was quite crazy. But he, he manages to, to come through it. And, I mean, just want to talk a little bit about his uh, later career as well, because, David, you touched on a point really early on um, that he was played exceptionally well at Lazio as well, but his time really here... Is, is sort of starting to draw to an end because he nearly, if I'm not mistaken, uh, doesn't he nearly join, he nearly goes to England sooner. Uh, so, but in the end, signs for Lazio. No? So, yeah, he ends up with uh, in the Premier League with Blackburn for a cameo. Yeah, he only played a few games, I believe, uh, but that was after his stint at Lazio. And uh, he wasn't as uh, prolific with goals at Lazio. Uh, definitely getting up around the 30 years of age mark uh, in, you know, 2000. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Lazio won a Scudetto. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he crossed over at the time where he didn't actually get the Scudetto medal for himself. But um, they were the top team when he went there. Uh, it's fair to say. I mean, you win, you win a title, uh, and he left a, a Palmer side um, that was still very, very strong. But uh, Lazio is, I mean, most people remember him for his time at Palmer, and probably more so Juventus after that. Lazio and Blackburn Rovers, not so much. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't know. This is this is a bit of a poison chalice question because. Uh, 
before he went to, to Lazio, there had been into interest from England, but there, there was then after that season, sorry, when he finishes at Lazio, there's also uh, interest in, as David said, he goes to Blackburn, despite teams like Wolves being also looking at him at that point. Uh, it's a bit uninspiring, his career in the Premier League, isn't it? And and Graeme Souness is the coach, and we can really have a podcast about him as a coach, um, but we're not going to do that right now. And he's in played as a forward and it's a bit weird isn't it but yeah i mean it is all a bit it's you know again to kind of bring it back to roberto you see the trajectory of his career he played in Serie A right until the very end he went out not on the top he didn't win a trophy but i mean robbie retires against milan at san siro with eighty thousand people chanting his name you know dino doesn't get that farewell he, he goes to Blackburn when he's like what 32 yeah. I think he scores once against Leeds in like what 8 or 9 games and then it's off to Ancona and he just you know the trajectory is just going down the leagues and then he just quietly retires at what 34 but the problem I think with Dino is that due to the, his style of play that combative all round marauding midfielder there's a shelf life to those type of players they don't mm. last very long and so by the time Dino, probably even by the time he moves to Lazio, he's kind of a spent force and he's, what, 30? And they just won the Scudetto the season prior. And he kind of gets lost in the shuffle because at that time you still had Dejan Stankovic, Veron was still there, you know, you know, all the great midfielders at Lazio had. Pavel Nadved was still there. Um, Swengorn Erksen was just about still there. He kind of moves at the beginning of 2000, 2001. It's not like it's a summer move. It's like he moves in like October or November. Really yeah. weird. Um, so he kind of gets lost in the shuffle at Lazio. And then you can see by the number of games that he plays that maybe injuries are taking a toll or he's fallen out of favour or he's not the player he was. So it's just a, a decline and he just drops down through the leagues, which is in contrast to how Baggio goes out. And it's arguable that Baggio could hardly move. By the time he's, you know, Roberto Baggio could hardly move because of his knees. But he retires at the top at 37, and Dino's like two or three years younger, but his isn't, his farewell isn't as grand. David, he could have gone there before, couldn't he, to, to the UK? Because uh, he's always been a fan of it, and I think he still speaks quite highly of it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, in his later life, he, he's been interviewed a few times. He stayed out of football, Dino Baggio, in the past, well, since his retirement, really. He was had a gripe with the way um, a few results went during his playing days with Parma. He, he made a gesture also to one of the referees, uh, I think when he was at Lazio, and, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, when you pretend to have money in between your fingers and he was suspended and and he claims that after that he was no longer picked for the for the national side as well. Uh, so he has a gripe with football in general. And I guess, you know, it happens to the best of them. Uh, and he has stayed out of the limelight, so to speak, and he went into a bit of coaching afterwards He's been uh, interviewed and he try. you can tell when he's uh, answering that he thinks about what he's going to respond with. He doesn't want to be, by his answer to the interviewer, he doesn't want to then be further uh, criticised in the media later on. So 
and he, he you know he's 50 now he's just turned 50 Dino Budger so happy birthday uh, <laughs> and yeah he's one of those players that likes to keep quiet afterwards and that I guess like Emmett was saying before it's kind of the way he exited the stage of club football and international football he loves his uh, lower league football he actually still goes to games he doesn't go to big games he, he apparently Dino loves to get back to Palmer and Torino where he first, uh, you know, probably his glory days, especially with Palmer, and, and he still hangs out with a few of the players, still speaks to Robbie Baggio, still speaks to, I think, Orlandini was one of his his uh, best friends from his playing days as well. Likes to be near his children. He's got a few kids. Uh, none of them are, are going to be Dino's or Robbie's, unfortunately. What about Eddie's? Uh, look, <laughs> po- possibly an Eddie here or there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think for the for the listener, we we need to to at least put a link on on Twitter underneath this uh, ad for the the pod. A link to Eddie Budge for those that don't know who know who he is. Come on, quick, quick, everyone quick, knows quick who Eddie word Budge on Eddie. Not everyone knows Eddie. Now, I, you know, I think even at, at the dinner table at a Robbie Budge Christmas, no one really asks Eddie about his playing days. It's just the way it is. I bet he's about twenty nine clubs that know Eddie. <laughs> he played for everyone he's a yeah poor old Eddie I'm, um, I'm going to type in Eddie going? just quickly no, he's 47 now oh, yeah uh, look he's he, actually Eddie was quite good I remember watching a few games when he was playing for Catania and he was he actually scored a couple of goals he's a bit of a playmaker he was definitely trying to be a Robbie I think he's he's a, a few years younger than, than Robbie mm. but uh, yeah, he played for some very, very small clubs. <laughs> did he try and yeah, grow that, a ponytail? That... That's the big question. Sorry, what was that, Emmett? Did he try and grow a ponytail? That's the big question. Oh, God. I reckon that's a question that he won't answer, and maybe Robbie will. <laughs> He's the non-divine ponytail. The non-divine <laughs> Well, he was divine for Pisa. So, scored 11 goals there. Scored 22 in a stint with Ascoli. So, there you go, Eddie. We're not forgetting you. I really would like to know why he left Catania. Uh, 18 goals in 28 games. And then he had a second stint there. So, yeah, yeah, big yeah. money move from Catania to Salernitana, you know. <laughs> uh, that's as far as the Eddie Baggio podcast goes. <laughs> Bless him. But no, it's, I mean, going back to Dino, <laughs> going back to Dino, um, just a quick question, just going back again, if that's all right. When there was always that rumour that he might end up at Middlesbrough 10 years prior to when he went to Blackburn. Emma, you said that his legs are pretty much gone by the time he gets to Blackburn, and that's true. Do you ever think that he could have actually performed well in the Premier League at, at that time still? Um, and do you think it would have made an impact? Because the type of player we've discussed him as does suggest that he, that sort of player could have lent itself to the Premier League. I mean, if we're talking, what if he went to Middlesbrough, say, 95, 96, 97? Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, he would have he would have thrived. I mean, you only have to look at someone, say, like Roberto Di Matteo, who was kind of a similar player. Yeah. And I mean, he went to Chelsea and, you know, scored an FA Cup final and, like, four seconds and um, won trophies and did really well. So, I mean, yeah, Dino would, you know, at that time, Serie A was so far ahead of the Premier League. Even an average player in Serie A probably could have went to the Premier League and made a big impact. Oh, so, they did. And Dino was obviously a very, very 
very good player. So I don't see no reason why you know he could have he couldn't have succeeded at Middlesbrough, depending on which time period you're talking about. If he was near his peak, you know, in that mid to late nineties, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I might just add to that that um, yeah he was sort of courted to go, but obviously stayed because he was with Palmer. But it wouldn't surprise me if if he wanted to go to the Premier League after that sort of '96 era when Palmer didn't win. And that was at a time, I think, when Zola went as well. And a lot of Italians were going to Chelsea, as Emmett was saying there, with Viali and Di Matteo. Ravinelli was at Middlesbrough. So there was the example already set by some of the players leaving Serie A to go and uh, really did help promote the Premier League on a world scale. Even Andrea Silenzi went from, I think he went from Napoli to... I can't remember if it was Nottingham Forest, Benito Carbone. No, it, was, so uh, it was Torino, Torino to Nottingham Forest. Okay. Torino's Forest. Yeah. <laughs> well, what a move that is, especially back then. Uh, I think Torino were, were challenging for the UEFA Cup and uh, yeah. he went from there to Forest. But yeah, at that time, in the look, you, you hear of Baggio in one of his interviews he's given, Dino Baggio that is, uh, I'll just clarify that he said that Football so much, uh, he sort of leaned towards that pure, the word, the description of being a little bit more pure than what Italian was. And uh, so I think that's also him leaning, uh, trying to describe some of his, the gripe that he had with what happened in the mid-90s to him in Serie A. It would have been quite interesting to see him at his peak in England, where obviously let's we'd be honest about this. You know the tactics, especially in that era. There, it's uh, a lot. The players were freer, weren't they? They're obviously a lot more uh, able to go and do as they as they wanted to, often to the detriment of the game. But I mean, still, then it would have been really interesting to see, um, especially in that Middlesbrough side. But I mean. In today's game, uh, any of you guys think there's a player that's anything like him? Or I'll, I'll, I'll put a couple of names in. Uh, Samuel Ricci, uh, I don't want to just go with Italians, but watching Serie A and, and calling it and Serie B at the moment as well. Samuel Ricci from Empoli it has a similar build, a very lean, tall midfielder that plays in the same Dino Baggio position. And he's already scored a fantastic goal this season against Bologna uh, from outside the box. Uh, he's quite good with uh, his head as well, aerially. Uh, besides that, uh, I'll, I might leave it to Emmett for a second while I have a think. <laughs> I mean, the, the easy answer would be Nicolo Barella in terms of, you know, a marauding box-to-box type mm. of midfielder, but Barella clearly doesn't have the, the height that Dino Baggio has or had. Has yeah, he still has a height? You don't lose height. <laughs> he's quite good in the air, though, Barella. He's, he's very good in the air yeah, as well. Yeah, he, he's good for a small player, but just in terms of you know the the like, what was Dino Baggio like? Six foot three, six foot four. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other you know Italian midfielders currently. I would go with Tommaso Pobega. Has that build? Uh, plays in the centre of midfield. Rolando Mandragora as well. Both with Torino at the moment. Two players I've seen a lot of this season. So there's also players that are not Italian. You've got your Svanbergs and your Schoutens at Bologna. Very similar builds. Uh, and K- 
that they do strike from outside the box. Farnberg can actually score goals as well. I haven't seen any of these guys pull off a bicycle kick like Dino Bajor <laughs> did, though. So, actually, a player That's who's just very it, like him now, now that you think about it is Sergei Milinkovic Savic because he has the height, he's technically yeah. proficient, can score yeah. from long range. Yeah, he would it, definitely be a very Bajo esque midfielder. Yeah, and in the Lazio shirt as well. Yeah, that's true. It's, yeah. it's hard to sometimes to compare players like that because he just was so consistently good for, for so long. So after, I think it's one of those, the biggest question will always be with those players that can they continue to do that for, for that amount of time and at that standard of clubs as well? Because it's, uh, it's, sorry, go on, David. Yeah, it's the old saying, he's quite skillful for a big man. We usually attribute that to strikers, but back in that day and age, like as Emmett was saying before, and, and yourself, Patrick Vieira, you know, he came after Dino Baggio, but that tall, physical, you know, almost, I don't want to say muscular, but just a big presence in the midfield. We're used to seeing the likes of Daniele De Rossi or a Gattuso or a Pirlo. Um, you know, Dino Baggio was kind of had a patent on that mold of, of midfielder. You know the bigger frame. Absolutely, absolutely. That was skillful. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I think with with Dino Baggio, I think that what is so nice to go back and look at him is just when you when you obviously watched uh, not just the ability that he's got on the pitch, but I think that it's quite interesting of how well thought he was. Uh, the coaches thought a lot of him as well, didn't they, David? I mean, there's a lot of coaches. He said quite nice things, and they all, he always seemed to have that relationship with them as well. Um, even though um, you know we've sort of painted a picture at, at the beginning of the pod that maybe he wasn't completely. Um, wow, it's, it's so strange. When how can I explain this? Football wasn't the main thing in his life. He's got other things as well. You know, obviously it's a huge, huge part, um, and he made decisions because of that. Um, but also that you look at the way he played and he was such a disciplined player. He must have been a nice person to have around the, the team, I would imagine. Yeah, a fairly balanced person, not full of himself, uh, not the massive ego that a lot of the other players would have had at the time. Uh, to be able to play under guys like Ancelotti, Saki, of course, uh, they, they demand obedience, but also playing under Malizani, um you know, you've got to be able to to be a player that's adaptable and not obviously have the massive ego. Uh, yeah. Emmett, just before we close up, I'm going to ask you both, but I'll start with Emmett. Favourite goal? Favourite moment? I, I asked you, obviously, your earliest moment, but just what's your favourite take on Dino Baggio or anything that really sticks in your mind of his career? Um, I would say probably the goal against Spain in the USN 84 quarterfinal. Um, just to me, it typifies everything about Dino Baggio. He gets a ball from, I uh, must be 25 yards and just smashes a rocket into the corner of, uh, I think it was a Zuba Zarata, who was in the Spanish goal at USN yeah. 84 and just smashes it right into the corner. And at USN 84, you had those real... The netting was so far back, like in the goal, and it was really baggy. So <laughs> yeah. when he hit the ball, the ball seemed to like travel much further, you know, because there was so much netting 
and the ball went right through it. So the ball seemed to carry on forever. And he just he just blasted it into the net. So that probably is my what I consider to be Dino Baggio, just peak Dino Baggio. Um It's a good memory that one. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. it's a good I'd good, have to agree. And and also the way that a player like Costa Corta runs over to him to to let him know, you know, you've got a player with that's that big, a Costa Corta running over to you and trying to pull you to the <laughs> ground and that's what it meant to to other players. Dino Baggio wasn't even one of the senior members of the team and someone like Costa Corta just, you know, that just typifies exactly what that goal meant and uh, the player that Dino Baggio was at the time. Yeah, oh, another memory actually. Another memory that stands out is um, a France '98 qualifier between Italy and Poland at the São Paulo. Um, this was under Cesare Maldini. He had just come in um, after Saki had left to go back to Milan, and Robbie Baggio was brought back into the fold after like two and a half years in the wilderness, and he'd come on. Baggio had come on maybe for the last. 25 minutes and Dino spreads a lovely ball over the top and Baggio breaks through the lines takes the ball, takes it around the goalkeeper and like just slots it into the, the empty goal but it was just nice to see the two Baggio's working together um, Italy won, I think it was the third goal of a, of a 3-0 win against Poland but it was just nice to see the two of them actually combine for the same goal yeah. No, that <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. What a shame we never got all three of them on the same pitch to combine in some epic goal. <laughs> yeah. <But> never mind. <laughs> There's always PlayStation for anyone that's got the old games. So uh, to get the that's PS One out, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he scored seven goals for Italy, and and uh, uh, you know, not a massive amount at club level, probably twenty-five to thirty mark, Dino Baggio. But for me, the goal against uh, the bicycle kick, the scissor kick for Palmer. Uh, for anyone it's that amazing. hasn't seen that, go straight to YouTube after this uh, pod's over and, and type that in. Dino Baggio and uh, Scissor Kick. Uh, absolutely immense kick from the edge of the area. And uh, quite a big uh, game as well. You know, Parma Milan. So, yeah, huge. 1998, that it's, one. The height, the height he gets on that is just ridiculous. Excellent. Well, guys, I'm going to call it a day now. So we're going to say ciao for now. But just before we do, David, thank you so much for coming on and discussing the Pleasure. Forgotten Baggio with us. It's uh, been brilliant to have you on. And thank you also, Emmett. Enjoy your commentary games this weekend, David, and make sure everyone tunes in and listens to that. Thank and you. also, Emmett, enjoy Milano. And we will say ciao for now. I'll see you in Milan, Emmett. Bye, Rich. <laughs>